0: Week in FCPA, episode 55 of the weekend in June 2, 2017, with Code edition. This week, Jay and I have a wide-ranging discussion on some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, really across the globe. We take a look at the Brazilian meatpacker JBS, who agreed fine ever for bribery and corruption 3.2 billion in Brazil we consider the uh, sentencing of Sam mabindi uh, who sentenced to two years in jail for paying for paying bribes to help OXZIP with lucrative mining deals in Africa in addition to his sentence the judge had some pretty choice words about why no one else was prosecuted and uh, corporations receiving DPA. very interesting we take a look at the very unusual situation in the United Kingdom where a merger of two candidates, AMEC and the Wood Group, in that merger, both the acquire and the target turned out to be under SFO investigations for so their use of unit oil as an agent. We explore what are the implications of that. Case across the globe. We talk about compliance making its way up into the board of directors level. We uh, review Matthew Stevenson's very provocative piece asking, "Did uh, Jared Kushner violate the FCPA in any of his uh, negotiations with uh, Russian bankers for funding of his uh, properties in Manhattan?" Jay gives us a sneak peek at his uh, weekend report. We consider the uh, Golden State Warriors win and and the uh, Astros, the leading the major leagues. And I, uh, once again, uh, ask people to buy my book. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 55 for the week ending June 2, 2017, the Covfefe edition. Uh, this week, Jay and I are going to uh, wrap up the compliance and ethics-related stories from the week. We've got some uh, really interesting things, uh, literally uh, global in nature, Jay. So um, I thought we might start with the um, Brazilian meatpacker. JBS has agreed to the largest uh, anti-corruption fine or fine for bribery and corruption ever, $3.2 billion in Brazil. So um, really interesting case uh, out of there. What were your thoughts on that matter?
1: Well, one thing that uh, I want to see when the dust settles is that uh, was it either two days after or two days before they reached settlement that their Brazilian counsel, Trench Rossi, uh, disassociated themselves with the company? And I believe uh, JBF still uh, retains uh, Baker McKenzie as U.S. counsel, but I'd like to know what were the circumstances that led to that breakup?
0: Hmm that is uh, quite interesting. One thing we should note is that the um the the fine and penalty is the largest ever. I think they have uh 30 years to pay it. So uh it's quite a quite a good payout uh for the company. Uh nevertheless um I think it really brings up a couple of different angles that we should explore, Jay. Certainly from the global anti-corruption enforcement. Uh when you have the the biggest settlement ever, that makes news. But it also points to really the endemic corruption that had been going on in Brazil, and more importantly, now the investigation and enforcement against that corruption. So we've got Brazilian prosecutors who um, are going after literally the biggest corporations in the country, in addition to the politicians um, around bribery and corruption. So uh, continued leadership from the Brazilian prosecutors in this era area, rather. Uh, For those who do not think that uh, the U.S. has an interest in uh, facilitating anti-corruption enforcement outside the United States, whether that's under the FCPA or facilitating uh, enforcement or investigations uh, for other countries, I think this case clearly answers that. Um, JBS actually imported uh, meat and poultry products to the United States, and uh, many of those products that came to the United States— were um, from the company that paid bribes to um, health inspectors, uh, veterinarians, uh, other Brazilian government officials to lo- take, a bl- take a blind eye and look the other way. Now, I'm not saying that uh, rancid meat and poultry got to the United States, but it's uh, <clears throat> sure a lot more possible when you do not have the appropriate government level of uh, meat and poultry inspection. Also, JBS... Is one of the uh, is uh, has a U.S. affiliate, so we don't know the implications of that. Uh, we don't know whether that U.S. affiliate uh, was part of the bribery and corruption scheme. Certainly, uh, a U.S. affiliate is going to make the company subject to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And uh, with Baker and McKenzie involved, I would certainly expect that there's cooperation going on between the um, the company and U.S. prosecutors uh, over this issue. So. Not that we've just scratched the surface, but I think there's a lot more there that will be unpacked, and certainly uh, Trench Rossi, a very prestigious, well-known firm in uh, Brazil, and indeed the, uh, the Brazilian affiliate of Baker & McKinsey, um, um, d- disassociating with themselves is a very, very interesting development. You, uh, you rarely see that uh, unless something uh, became very crosswise between the client and the law firm. So we'll have to continue to to keep our eye on that one, Jay. Um, The second one was in, um, I'm not sure if it's going to be the end of OXIF or a follow-up to the OXIF case. The uh, fixer or third party hired by OXIF to um, pay bribes in Africa to secure lucrative mining deals, Samuel Mbimbi, if I've uh, pronounced that right, was sentenced to two years in jail. And uh, he was, uh, he pled guilty, so there's no question of his guilt. But what I found interesting, Jay, was, um, number one, the government asked for a five-year sentence. Um, he asked for 10 months uh, in jail, which he he had previously, or was currently serving. So uh, basically, he would get to walk, and the judge uh, gave two years. And the judge's reasoning was that uh, no one else had been prosecuted in this case. No other individuals had been criminally prosecuted. And the judge... Uh, Publicly scolded the Department of Justice in asking why there were no other criminal prosecutions. The uh, AUSA present at the hearing said that uh, the government was working on it, but uh, I think the judge was dead, dead spot on, and and he criticized the use of DPAs, where companies could come in and get a deferred prosecution agreement, and here the individual who uh, actually cooperated with the government uh, is sentenced to two years in jail. So. a, a rather unusual public outburst by a judge on the lack of robust enforcement by the Department of Justice. Uh, we don't know how this might play out, if at all, going, uh, going forward. I don't know if this will play into the uh, ongoing debate about whether or not DPA should be a part of uh, FCPA enforcement or not. But when you have a federal judge excoriating the government for uh, Prosecuting uh, the individuals but not the company its a—it's a, or higher-up individuals in the company, it's certainly uh, unusual, Jay. I think, uh,
1: I think the judge channeled his inner Howard Beale. I think that was it, huh? I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. Everybody get out there and talk to those white-shoe law firms who march into your courts and say, I'm sick of getting DPAs. We have a law, so someone, maybe the DOJ, should go out and enforce it.
0: Well, you know, that's uh, very interesting when we have an attorney general who says uh, somebody broke the law, you know, we're going to enforce it. And whether that changes FC- the calculus on FCPA enforcement or not it's still an open question. Uh, if the department does aggressively change its posture or changes its posture to a more aggressive approach towards criminally prosecuting uh, either – corporations or uh, high ranking individuals. Um, it could uh, have serious consequences, particularly along the lines of uh, companies willing to self-disclose and report. Uh, it's one thing to self-disclose and, re- uh, self, self-disclose, cooperate and remediate, uh, to try to drive your overall fine and penalty down. It's quite another thing to, uh, self-disclose, uh, cooperate, remediate, and then find out you're going to jail anyway. So, um, uh, just a very odd and really interesting development uh, in that situation. Uh, why anyone would be surprised OXIF got a DPA, though, is pretty clear to me why they got it. They had very good lawyers. And if we learn one thing from O.J. Simpson uh, that we uh, pr- pr- perfected here in Texas, if you got the money to hire very good lawyers, you're going to get a good result most of the time. So uh, anyway, well, we'll have to watch that one, Jay. That one could really... Have some additional fallout that um, could could percolate down to the level of uh, the compliance officer going forward. Uh, let's go across the pond um, to a really interesting situation that's come up, Jay, in the uh, proposed merger of Amec, uh, UK construction company, and the Wood Group. Uh, this is a friendly merger; it's not an uh, um, um, unfriendly takeover. But it turns out that both the Acquire AMEC and the Target Wood Group are under investigation from the serious fraud office relating to their use of unioil as an agent. And so that really brings up some some interesting questions, I think, Jay, that your clients and my clients um, would have, which is, you know, what do we do? What do we do when the person, the entity that's buying us discloses to us or we uncover that they're under a uh, uh, corruption, -corruption, anti-corruption violation um, investigation? What do you do when your target, turns out, um, uh, is under investigation by the relevant government authorities? How many government authorities across the world may be investigating both of these companies? Because I know Wood Group, for instance, has a, a very significant presence here in Texas, and uh, in the United States generally, so uh, we have to assume that information about Unioil has been shared with the U.S. Department of Justice. We we have some pretty established rules under the FCPA around uh, post-acquisition integration of a target into your compliance program, which requires uh, integration of your compliance program, training of uh, senior uh, executives and high-risk individuals pretty aggressive time frame training, uh, forensic audits of the targets, uh, books and records to see if there's a, uh, any outstanding uh, violations hidden in the books that weren't popped up in pre-acquisition due diligence, and then turning that information over to the government. Uh, we also have a fairly robust system of pre-acquisition due diligence that the Department of Justice has uh, uh, talked to us about at least since the 2012 FCPA guidance um, and going forward, on the types of due diligence you should do in pre-acquisition. We haven't had it. We had an opinion release on that subject and uh, recognizing that you don't, you never get to do all the pre-acquisition due diligence you want. And you may be limited by a particular uh, nuances of, of some countries laws. Nevertheless, I think in the United States, we would, you and I could probably formulate an answer to that if our client came to us, but in the United Kingdom the M&A part is really not fleshed out in any of the commentary to the UK Bribery Act. So uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see how these two parties might resolve this. We uh, recorded um, our uh, panel podcast, Everything Compliance, a little bit earlier today. And with our colleague, Jonathan Armstrong, we posed this uh, the same question. And, and he had what I thought was a really creatively interesting response which was that perhaps, and emphasize the word perhaps, the parties, meaning the Wood Group and AMAC, could uh, work with the Serious Fraud Office to craft some DPA, which would um, uh, resolve the, uh, the open issues. And, of course, in the United Kingdom, the DPA is under the court's jurisdiction, so there would be court involvement. Uh, Jonathan recognizes this has not been done in this situation, and it's lots of moving parts in the speedy operation of uh, acquisition and takeover. But um, you know, kudos for some uh, creative thinking there. and we it, it, if that occurs because of the public nature of deferred prosecution agreements in the United Kingdom, that uh, court uh, documents would be released. And so we would have some guidance from the court on what they thought were the key elements of dealing. With this fact scenario. So I spit out a lot there, Jay, but uh, certainly you've uh, uh, worked with companies, you've been in companies in and a. Um, you've been the target. and uh, uh, you've also been the acquirer. Uh, really, how would uh, how would you think through advising a client when you when you got this type of information on either side of the fence?
1: Well, generally what tends to happen is uh, if you thought you were going into a clean transaction, And then you saw that if one or both of the parties um, had some issues, uh, you know, the first thing you would have to think about, number one, is the uh, viability of that company going forward. Then a quick number two would be taking a look at the purchase price. And what happens quite often is that this is the opportunity for the um, acquirer to uh, leverage the information about the uh, potential violations and really negotiate a rock bottom price. Uh we've seen a, a couple examples where also the remediation might be priced into the deal, whereas you would pay a, a lower purchase price for the asset, but that money that you're not paying would be used to uh move forward and start immediate remediation and start working on a combined uh compliance for the uh you know joined entity. I think what's really interesting about this is that both companies have been dinged by Uno oil. So it's it's probably interesting in the first place that they wanted to merge. And, um, you know, number two, t- to your point about the SFO, you know, uh, using a DPA but using it under court order, it could definitely uh, reveal some very interesting information about these two companies.
0: So I think you're, uh, you're spot on. In uh, uh, talking about the business side of it, and, and really, will it devalue either side? Certainly, if your uh, uh, target turns out to be under some sort of governmental investigation, that could negatively impact the purchase price. But here we have the anomaly of both acquire the acquirer and the target, so you have a have a double valuation question. But that's really uh, an area that I don't think gets enough play in the FCPA commentary. At um, which is the the devolution or devaluation, perhaps more properly, of uh, the acquired company. I represented a company once that uh, purchased a Canadian company. Uh, it turned out 25% of that Canadian company was tied up in a JV in uh, Russia. And uh, I was part of the team that looked very closely at the uh, Canadian company, but that's all we looked at. And we didn't look at that JV. And uh, the JV uh, just could not be remediated, and the company – the acquiring entity ended up just giving the JV to the Russian owners um, because they couldn't uh, couldn't fix it. So it certainly devalued uh, that. We've had uh, Elandia and Latinode, the enforcement action, famous or infamous, where um, uh, Elandia had to write off their entire uh, – uh, or rather the entire investment had to be written off. So taking a look at it and, and, and even if uh, you don't have to write off the entire investment, if part of your purchase price is based upon contracts which were illegally obtained or say they were legally obtained because the, the country in question was not subject to the FCPA or the company in question was not subject to the FCPA and bribery was not illegal in the company, country where it occurred, once that target becomes acquired and it's you – and you're subject to the FCPA, you cannot continue those contracts uh, because they were obtained illegally. And uh, so you're going to lose that revenue. And if that's a significant stream, uh, revenue stream anticipated, that certainly could uh, negatively impact. So lots of issues in that case, lots of issues that I don't think get enough um, contemplation. And certainly the 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 negative business aspect, and you we hadn't even touched on the reputational issues, but just on the the business aspect. So uh, very interesting uh, as well,
1: uh, Jeff. So uh, what what ahead. would we call this now? It's it's not um, successor liability, but is it co-confessor liability?
0: Well, um, you know, for those that engage in the confessional, perhaps so. <laughs>
1: uh, okay, I don't think so. He, net-
0: Either one of us are are fall into that category, though. Kofefe. Kofefe. So um, the um, I was interested uh, that our colleague uh, over at the Wall Street Journal um, Risk and Corruption uh, Journal at the Wall Street Journal, Ben DiPetrio, Mets fan uh, extraordinaire, um, wrote a piece about a compliance making its way to the board of directors. And although this is not something you and I have, I think, direct, directly hit on before, we've certainly touched around it. Many of the corporate scandals we've seen over the past couple of years, um, obviously Wells Fargo, VW, Theranos, uh, are situations where the board of directors really had no clue about compliance, ethics, um, risk, risk management. Uh, I was struck this week, Jay, when I read that uh, former um, Reagan's secretary of state, George Shultz, who was on the Theranos board, he was deposed in litigation uh, sur- uh, uh, underlying that company. And uh, when asked, what questions did you put to um, uh, Theranos uh, majority stockholder, Elizabeth Holmes, after uh, there was public notification of uh, alleged fraud in the uh, proprietary testing, he said none. Didn't ask her a thing. Didn't know what to ask. Assumed everything was fine. And that really drove home to me, Jay, the the, the boards need to uh, kind of take up their game. But Ben wrote an article where he talked about compliance is actually making its way to the board, and I think this can only benefit the compliance profession and uh, the, certainly the chief compliance officer. But putting um, board uh, uh, compliance expertise at the board is, I think, going to be an increasingly important part of uh, boards going forward. So uh, kind of what do you see in the, the top-to-bottom ethical culture issues here?
1: Well, uh, you know, for the longest time, uh, everyone's uh, been talking about a seat at the table, so it, it appears that that's happening. And we, we've we kind of navigated through the, you know, what is the best reporting structure? Do they need to go through the GC or go directly to the CEO. I think the other part that's interesting in Ben's article is that this um, research that he's quoting was done by both um, Ethisphere and Conversant. And one of the things that I know you really are looking towards the future with the Internet of Things and different data feeds is how we can start to use uh, technology to, uh, you know, strategically embed ethics and compliance in the day-to-day business. So uh, I know you go to a lot of uh, different conferences like I do, and in terms of gauging how far we are there in terms of technology, um, where would you guess we are, and how long would you think it's going to be before we get something like uh, an electronic silver bullet here?
0: Well, uh, I don't think there's ever going to be an electronic silver bullet, Jay. I think it's always going to be a combination of human and technological resources. Um, uh, I think what we've got to get is greater board engagement and greater board expertise. George Shultz may be the poster child for you know having a prestigious board member, but when you have a board member who doesn't even ask questions after alleged uh, illegal conduct has arisen, um, uh, that's... That's not serving the board, and it's not serving the stakeholders. It's not serving the shareholders. It's uh, a board not engaging in their uh, legal duty. So um, I think it, uh, we're not going to see a, really a magic bullet, but uh, we're going to see um, more engagement, more data being provided to the uh uh, CCO, and in turn, that data with appropriate analysis being provided by the board. But the board's got to ask some questions. They can't just take these reports and, and say, uh, thank you very much. Uh, the board's going to have to spend some time because the, the issue of risk is just too great. Um, this this piddly little scandal is going to cost uh, Wells Fargo uh, billions. And uh, Theranos um uh, it may still exist going forward, but it may not. Uh, and that, when you have that kind of catastrophic risk and you have a board that doesn't even consider it, um, that's, that's really a disconnect.
1: Totally agree.
0: So um, someone from your former neck of the woods, um, our, our colleague Matthew Stevenson, founder and editor of the Global Anti-Corruption blog, uh, continued his provocativeness around the Trump administration by writing a piece entitled, uh, Did Jared Kushner Violate the FCPA? Or at least that was the uh, the issue. The title was even more provocative. Jared Kushner may have violated the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And um, I've uh, done some additional research on this beyond Professor Stevenson's article. And pretty clearly there was uh, a meeting between... Um, Kushner and uh, Sergei Kisilak and Sergey Gorkov, the head of the Russian uh, state-owned um, uh, head of a Russian state-owned bank, uh, the government, as in the U.S. government, is looking into this for um, security breaches uh, or other uh, violations. But uh, Professor Stevenson wrote about it from the angle of the FCPA because we have uh, Jared Kushner. Um, the son-in-law of the president uh, allegedly trying to obtain funding um, from uh, a Russian bank uh, to help uh, on a refin- refinancing for uh, his family-owned business or building in Manhattan. And um, query: Did he promise anything for that? Um, all of this occurred before he came into government, uh, between the time of the election. But, um, uh, certainly if this was a straight FCPA analysis, I think it would be enough there to, to at least consider it. So, uh, kudos to professor Stevenson for raising this from the FCPA perspective. And I thought, uh, you know, it's, um, they seem to have a lot of open issues running through the white house and their staff right now.
1: Uh, I totally agree. And, uh, <laughs> You know, I've been accused of being uh, a little bit too political before, so I don't want to comment anymore. But all I do want to say is uh, I can't wait till we talk next week and see what we hear on uh, June 8th. I think that will be pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, I had uh, a fellow ask me today if um, uh, if I was available for a con call next week. And I said uh, every day but the 8th. So uh, I think it's going to be must see TV. Jay, I was going to ask you um, uh, to kind of preview your weekend report, and if I could set it up a little bit, Um, when we recorded our Everything uh, Compliance podcast, you really had an interesting angle to compliance that I don't think is talked about enough, and I wrote down what you said because it struck me so much, which is compliance as a competitive advantage. Now, for an agent or other third party who either has a compliance program or I, um, uh, received FCPA training, I think that could be an advantage. But you talked about it in a much broader uh, scope, which is if a company has a compliance program and a best practices compliance program, why that can give them a, a competitive advantage. And I really wanted to, to see if uh, – on today, uh, our podcast. If you might be able to just kind of explain how you how you would see that going forward.
1: Sure. Then, thanks for the uh, the intro and the the inspiration. Um, when we were speaking earlier this morning on the um, Everything Compliance podcast, that's going to talk that's going to come out um, uh, over the weekend. Uh, one of the things I was looking at is uh, my involvement within FCPA. Uh, comes from a couple different backgrounds, initially from the translation business and now coming in from the corporate independent monitoring business. And one of the things that I've noticed uh, in both situations when working with clients is you have uh, certain organizations that are really take to heart the message of sharing information and working together. And uh, in the podcast, we just spoke about examples on how, uh, you know, there were certain companies that I worked with that if I helped them translate their code of conduct, it could take a month to do the translations, and it could take six months to get sign-off through the organization because it was so siloed. And um, I just shared some best practices about companies who really uh, take a look at the subject matter experts who are throughout the organization, and there's no need to do four audits or four reports when internal audit has that capability to do it. And it's really just about uh, sharing the information and finding out who is the best person getting their buy-in and then working together. And ultimately, if you have a situation like that, you can have, um, you know, having a going forward plan where not only do you have state-of-the-art compliance, but you have compliance, which also can be a competitive advantage.
0: So I thought that was a really good point, and I think uh, I hope that you know we can continue to explore this, continually to talk about it, and really get this message into the greater compliance community. Uh, because um, uh, one of the things that uh, I really struck me about your concept, and as you articulated, Jay, is it, it really puts compliance as a revenue generator. And we we typically don't think of compliance as a revenue generator. Compliance may be seen as uh, improving business process, leading to greater fi- efficiencies, that sort of thing. But as a true revenue generator, and if we can start having that sort of discussion, that really takes the um, all of the negatives you hear about. Well, what's the ROI? You know, why, why should I pay for this? What's it going to What's it going to give me? Well. This is exactly what it will give you a competitive advantage that uh, shows how compliance is really uh, generating revenue for your co- company, and that will really take, um, I think, it really lead to an expansion of uh, the uh, the compliance profession going forward. So, Great. so. Um, we got to talk about my book. Uh, the new book is still out, 2016, The Year in Corporate FCPA Enforcement, still available at ComplianceWeek.com. I hope you will uh, check it out. I've got a link in the show notes to um, how you would purchase it. I uh, have to say, of course, for uh, you Californians listening, uh, the Warriors won big last night, um, just as I predicted. Uh, so uh, I'm going to see if we get a fo, 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 fo. Um, Odds, I don't think uh, – I think the pundits would say no, but uh, they were pretty outstanding last night, Jay. I, w- I, will, I will go along with you and, and say foe. And say foe. And of Fo course – Foe and, ke- and Confefe, right? And Confefe <laughs> and the Astros still have the best record in baseball. So uh, how about all that?
1: But, but you, you know, know, try as you may. Keep trying to jinx them every week, and, and you might get lucky.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. Well, Jay, uh, it's been a great uh, roundup. Uh, you want to take us home?
1: Sure. On behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we thank you for joining us as we take a look at the FCPA week that was for the week ending June 2nd, 2017. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend, everyone.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it. and would rate us as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only weekly compliance-related podcast. Also, Jay and I would love to hear from you. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jayrosa at affiliatedmonitors.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again for another episode of This Week at FCPA. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c sweetradiocom